This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The New Jerusalem by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 3 The Gates of the City The man I met coming from Jerusalem reported all sorts of contradictory impressions, and yet my own impression contradicted them all. Their impressions were doubtless as true as mine, but I describe my own because it is true, and because I think it points to a neglected truth about the real Jerusalem. I need not say I did not expect the real Jerusalem to be the new Jerusalem, a city of charity and peace, any more than a city of chrysolite and pearl. I might more reasonably have expected an austere and ascetic place, oppressed with the weight of its destiny, with no inns except monasteries, and these sealed with the terrible silence of the Trappists, an awful city where men speak by signs in the street. I did not need the numberless jokes about Jerusalem today to warn me against expecting this. Anyhow, I did not expect it, and certainly I did not find it. But neither did I find what I was much more inclined to expect, something at the other extreme. Many reports had led me to look for a truly cosmopolitan town, that is, a truly conquered town. I looked for a place like Cairo, containing indeed old and interesting things, but open on every side to new and vulgar things, full of the touts who seem only created for tourists, and the tourists who only seem created for touts. There may be more of this in the place than pleases those who would idealize it, but I fancy there is much less of it than is commonly supposed in the reaction from such an ideal. It does not, like Cairo, offer the exciting experience of twenty guides fighting for one traveller, of young Turks drinking American cocktails as a protest against Christian wine. The town is quite inconvenient enough to make it a decent place for pilgrims, or a stranger might have imagined a place even less western than Cairo, one of the villages of Palestine described in dusty old books of biblical research. He might remember drawings like diagrams representing a well or a wine-press, rather a dry well, so to speak, and a wine-press very difficult to associate with wine. These hard, colorless outlines never did justice to the color of the East, but even to give it the color of the East would not do justice to Jerusalem. If I had anticipated the Baghdad of all our dreams, a maze of bazaars glowing with gorgeous wares, I should have been wrong again. There is quite enough of this vivid and varied color in Jerusalem, but it is not the first fact that arrests the attention, and certainly not the first that arrested mine. I give my own first impression as a fact, for what it's worth, and exactly as it came. I did not expect it, and it was some time before I even understood it. As soon as I was walking inside the walls of Jerusalem, I had an overwhelming impression that I was walking in the town of Rye, where it looks across the flat sea meadows toward Winchelsea. As I tried to explain this eccentric sentiment to myself, I was conscious of another which at once completed and contradicted it. I was not only like a memory of Rye, it was mixed with a memory of the Mount St. Michael, 
which stands among the sands of Normandy on the other side of the narrow sea. The first part of the sensation is that the traveller, as he walks the stony streets between the walls, feels that he is inside a fortress. But it is the paradox of such place that while he feels, in a sense, that he is in a prison, he also feels that he is on a precipice. The sense of being uplifted and set on a high place comes to him through the smallest cranny or most accidental crack in rock or stone. It comes to him especially through those long, narrow windows in the walls of the old fortifications, those slits in the stone through which the medieval archers used their bows and the medieval artists used their eyes with even greater success. Those green glimpses of fields far below, or flats far away, which delight us and yet make us dizzy, by being both near and far, when seen through the windows of Memeling, can often be seen from the walls of Jerusalem. Then I remember that in the same strips of medieval landscape could be seen always here and there a steep hill crowned with a city of towers, and I knew I had the mystical and double pleasure of seeing such a hill and standing on it. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid, but it is more strange when the hill cannot anywhere be hid even from the citizen in the city. Then, indeed, I knew that what I saw was Jerusalem of the Crusaders, or at least Jerusalem of the Crusades. It was a medieval town with walls and gates and citadel and built upon a hill to be defended by bowmen. The greater part of the actual walls now standing were built by Moslems late in the Middle Ages, but they are almost exactly like the walls that were being built by the Christians at or before that time. The crusader Edward, afterwards Edward I, reared such battlements far away among the rainy hills of Wales. I do not know what elements were originally Gothic or what originally Saracenic. The crusaders and the Saracens constantly copied each other while they combated each other. Indeed, it is a fact always to be found in such combats. It is one of the arguments against war that are really human, and therefore are never used by humanitarians. The curse of war is that it does lead to more international imitation, while in peace and freedom men can afford to have national variety. But some things in this country were certainly copied from the Christian invaders, and even if they are not Christian, they are in many ways strangely European. The walls and gates which now stand, whatever stood before them and whatever comes after them, carry a memory of those men from the West who came here upon that wild adventure, who climbed this rock and clung to it so perilously, from the victory of Godfrey to the victory of Saladin. And that is why this momentary eastern exile reminded me so strangely of the hill of Rye and of home. I do not forget, of course, that all these visible walls and towers are but the battlements and pinnacles of a buried city, or of many buried cities. I do not forget that such buildings have foundations that are to us almost like fossils, the gigantic fossils of some other geological epoch. Something may be said later of those lost empires whose very masterpieces 
are to us like petrified monsters. From this height, after long histories unrecorded, fell the forgotten idol of the Jebusites, on that day when David's javelin men scaled the city and carried through it, in darkness, behind his colored curtains, the god whose image had never been made by man. Here was waged that endless war between the graven gods of the plain and the invisible god of the mountain. From here the hosts carrying the sacred fish of the Philistines were driven back to the sea from which their worship came. Those who worshipped on this hill had come out of bondage in Egypt and went into bondage in Babylon. Small as was their country, there passed before them almost the whole pageant of the whole pagan world. All its strange shapes and strong, almost cruel colors remain in the records of their prophets, whose lightest phrase seems heavier than the pyramids of Egypt, and whose very words are like winged bulls walking. All this historic or prehistoric interest may be touched on in its turn, but I am not dealing here with the historic secrets unearthed by the study of the place, but with the historic associations aroused by the sight of it. The traveller is in the position of that famous fantastic who tied his horse to a wayside cross in the snow, and afterwards saw it dangling from the church spire of what had been a buried city. But here the cross does not stand as it does on the top of a spire, but as it does on the top of an Egyptian obelisk in Rome, where the priests have put a cross on the top of the heathen monument for fear it should walk. I entirely sympathize with their sentiment, and I shall try to suggest later why I think that symbol, the logical culmination of heathen as well as Christian things, the traveller in the traveller's tale looked up at last and saw, from the streets far below, the spire and cross dominating a Gothic city. If I looked up in a vision and saw it dominating a Babylonian city that blocked the heavens with monstrous palaces and temples, I should still think it natural that it should dominate. But the point here is that what I saw above the ground was rather the Gothic town than the Babylonian and that it reminded me, if not specially of the cross, at least of the soldiers who took the cross. Nor do I forget the long centuries that have passed over the places since these medieval walls were built, any more than the far more interesting centuries that passed before they were built. But any one taking exception to the description on the ground may well realize on consideration that it is an exception that proves the rule. There is something very negative about Turkish rule, and the best and worst of it is in the word neglect. Everything that lived under the vague empire of Constantinople remained in a state of suspended animation, like something frozen rather than decayed, like something sleeping rather than dead. It was a sort of Arabian spell like that which turned princes and princesses into marble statues in the Arabian Nights. All that part of the history of the place is a kind of sleep, and that of a sleeper who hardly knows if he has slept an hour or a hundred years. When I first found myself in the Jaffa Gate of Jerusalem, my eye happened to fall on something that might be seen anywhere but 
which seems somehow to have a curious significance there. Most people are conscious of some common object which still strikes them as uncommon, as if it were the first fantastic sketch in the sketchbook of nature. I myself can never overcome the sense of something almost unearthly about grass growing upon human buildings. There is in it a wild, even horrible fancy, as if houses could grow hair. When I saw that green hair on the huge stone blocks of the citadel, though I had seen the same thing on any number of ruins, it came to me like an omen or a vision, a curious vision at once of chaos and of sleep. It said that the grass will not grow where the Turk sets his foot. But it is the other side of the same truth to say that it would grow anywhere but where it ought to grow. And though in this case it was but an accident and a symbol, it was a very true symbol. We talk of the green banner of the Turk having been planted on this or that citadel, and certainly it was so planted with splendid valor and sensational victory. But this is the green banner that he plants on all his high cities in the end. Therefore my immediate impression of the walls and gates was not contradicted by my consciousness of what came before and what came after that medieval period. It remained primarily a thing of walls and gates, a thing which the modern world does not perhaps understand so well as the medieval world. There is involved in it all that idea of definition which those who do not like it are fond of describing as dogma. A wall is like a rule, and the gates are like the exceptions that prove the rule. The man making it has to decide where his rule will run and where his exceptions shall stand. He cannot have a city that is all gates any more than a house that is all windows. Nor is it possible to have a law that consists entirely of liberties. The ancient races and religions that contended for this city agreed with each other in this when they differed about everything else, it was true of practically all of them that when they built a city, they built a citadel. That is, whatever strange thing they may have made, they regarded it as something to be defined and defended. From this standpoint, the holy city was a happy city. It had no suburbs. That is to say, there are all sorts of buildings outside the wall, but they are outside the wall. Everybody is conscious of being inside or outside a boundary, but it is the whole character of the true suburbs which grow round our great industrial towns that they grow as it were unconsciously and blindly, like grass that covers up a boundary line traced on the earth. This indefinite expansion is controlled neither by the soul of the city from within, nor by the resistance of the lands round about. It destroys at once the dignity of a town, and the freedom of a countryside. The citizens are too new and numerous for citizenship yet. They never learn what there is to be learned of the ancient traditions of agriculture. The first sight of the sharp outline of Jerusalem is like a memory of the older type of limitation and liberty. Happy is the city that has a wall, and happier still if it is a precipice. Again, Jerusalem might be called a city of staircases. Many streets are steep and most actually cut into steps. 
It is, I believe, an element in the controversy about the cave at Bethlehem, traditionally connected with the nativity, that the sceptic doubt whether any beasts of burden could have entered a stable that has to be reached by such steps. And indeed, to anyone in a modern city like London or Liverpool, it may well appear odd like a cab-horse climbing a ladder. But as a matter of fact, if the asses and goats of Jerusalem could not go up and downstairs, they could not go anywhere. However this may be, I mention the matter here merely as adding another touch to that angular profile, which is the impression involved here. Strangely enough, there is something that leads up to this impression, even in the labyrinth of mountain, through which the road winds its way to the city. The hills round Jerusalem are themselves often hewn out in terraces, like a huge stairway. This is mostly for the practical and indeed profitable purpose of vineyards, and serves for a reminder that this ancient seat of civilization has not lost the tradition of the mercy and the glory of the vine. But in outline such a mountain looks much like the mountain of purgatory that Dante saw in his vision, lifted in terraces like titanic steps up to God. And indeed this shape also is symbolic, as symbolic as the pointed profile of the holy city. For a creed is like a ladder, while an evolution is only like a slope. A spiritual and social evolution is generally a pretty slippery slope, a miry slope, where it is very easy to slide down again. Such is something like the sharp and even abrupt impression produced by this mountain city, and especially by its wall with gates, like a house with windows. A gate, like a window, is primarily a picture frame. The pictures that are found within the frame are indeed very various and sometimes very alien. Within this framework are indeed to be found things entirely Asiatic or entirely Moslem, or even entirely nomadic. But Jerusalem itself is not nomadic. Nothing could be less like a mere camp of tents pitched by Arabs. Nothing could be less like the mere chaos of color in a temporary and tawdry bazaar. The Arabs are there, and the colors are there, and they make a glorious picture. But the picture is in a Gothic frame, and is seen, so to speak, through a Gothic window. And the meaning of all this is the meaning of all windows, and especially of Gothic windows. It is that even light itself is most divine within limits, and that even the shining one is most shining when he takes upon himself a shape. Such a system of walls and gates, like many other things, thought rude and primitive, is really very rationalistic. It turns the town, as it were, into a plan of itself, and even into a guide of itself. This is especially true, as may be suggested in a moment, regarding the direction of the roads leading out of it. But anyhow, a man must decide which way he will leave the city. He cannot merely drift out of the city as he drifts out of the modern cities through a litter of slums. And there is no better way to get a preliminary plan of the city than to follow the wall and fix the gates in the memory. Suppose, for instance, that a man begins in the south with the Zion Gate, which bears the ancient name of Jerusalem. 
This, to begin with, will sharpen the medieval and even the Western impression first, because it is here that he has the strongest sentiment of threading the narrow passages of a great castle, but also because the very name of the gate was given to this southwestern hill by Godfrey and Tancred during the period of the Latin kingdom. I believe it is one of the problems of the scholars why the Latin conquerors called this hill the Zion Hill, when the other is obviously the sacred hill. Jerusalem is traditionally divided into four hills, but for practical purposes into two. The lower eastern hill, where stood the temple and now stands the great mosque, and the western, where is the citadel and the Zion gate to the south of it. I know nothing of such questions, and I attach no importance to the notion that has crossed my own mind, and which I only mention in passing, for I have no doubt there are a hundred objections to it. But it is known that Zion, or Sion, was the old name of the place, before it was stormed by David, and even afterwards the Jebusites remained on this western hill, and some compromise seemed to have been made with them. It is conceivable, I wonder, that even in the twelfth century there lingered some local memory of what had once been a way of distinguishing Sion of the Jebusites from Salem of the Jews. The Zion Gate, however, is only a starting point here. If we go southeastward from it, we descend a steep and rocky path, from which can be caught the first and finest vision of what stands on the other hill to the east. The great mosque of Omar stands up like a peacock, lustrous with mosaics that are like plumes of blue and green. Scholars, I may say here, object to calling it the Mosque of Omar on the petty and pedantic ground that it is not a mosque and it was not built by Omar. But it is my fixed intention to call it the Mosque of Omar, and with ever-renewed pertinacity to continue calling it the Mosque of Omar. I possess a special permit from the Grand Mufti to call it the Mosque of Omar. He is the head of the whole Muslim religion, and if he does not know, who does? He told me in the beautiful French, which matches his beautiful manners, that it really is not so ridiculous after all to call the place the Mosque of Omar, since the great Caliph desired and even designed such a building, though he did not build it. I suppose it is rather as if Solomon's temple had been called David's temple. Omar was a great man, and the mosque was a great work, and the two were telescoped together by the excellent common sense of vulgar tradition. There could not be a better example of that great truth for all travellers, that popular tradition is never so right as when it is wrong, and that pedantry is never so wrong as when it is right. And as for the other objection, that the Dome of the Rock, to give it its other name, is not actually used as a mosque, I answer that Westminster Abbey is not used as an abbey. But modern Englishmen would be much surprised if I were referred to it as Westminster Church, to say nothing of the many modern Englishmen for whom it would be more suitable to call it Westminster Museum. And for whatever purposes the Moslems may actually use their great and glorious sanctuary, at least they have not allowed it to become the private house of a particular rich man. And that is what we have suffered to happen 
if not to Westminster Abbey, at least to Welbeck Abbey. The Mosque of Omar, I repeat firmly, stands on the great eastern plateau in place of the temple, and the wall that runs round it on the south side of the city contains only the dung gate, on which the fancy need not linger. All along outside this wall the ground falls away into the southern valley, and upon the dreary and stony steep opposite is the place called Ekeldama. Wall and valley turn together round the corner of the great temple platform, and confronting the eastern wall across the ravine is the mighty wall of the Mount of Olives. On this side there are several gates now blocked up, of which the most famous, the Golden Gate, carries in its very uselessness a testimony to the fallen warriors of the cross. For there is a strange Moslem legend that through this gate, so solemnly sealed up, shall ride the Christian king, who shall again rule in Jerusalem. In the middle of the square enclosure rises the great dark dome of the rock, and standing near it a man may see for the first time in the distance another dome. It lies away to the west, but a little to the north, and is surmounted not by a crescent, but a cross. Many heroes and holy kings have desired to see this thing, and have not seen it. It is very characteristic of the city, with its medieval medley and huddle of houses, that a man may first see the church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is in the west, by going as far as possible to the east. All the sights are glimpses, and things far can be visible and things near invisible. The traveller comes on the Moslem dome round a corner, and he finds the Christian dome, as it were, behind his own back. But if he goes on round the wall to the northeast corner of the court of the temple, he will find the next entrance, the gate of St. Stephen. On the slope outside, by a strange and suitable coincidence, the loose stones which lie on every side of the mountain city seem to be heaped higher, and across the valley, on the skirts of the Mount of Olives, is the great grey olive of Gethsemane. On the northern side the valley turns into an artificial trench, for the ground here is higher, and the next or northern gate bears the name of Herod, though it might well bear the name either of Godfrey or Saladin. For just outside it stands a pine tree, and beside it a rude bulk of stone, where stood these great captains in turn before they took Jerusalem. Then the wall runs on till it comes to the great Damascus gate, graven, I know not why, with great roses, in a style wholly heraldic and occidental, and in no way likely to remind us of the rich roses of Damascus, though their name has passed into our own English tongue and tradition, along with another word for the delicate decoration of the sword. But at the first glance, at any rate, it is hard to believe that the roses on the walls are not the western roses of York or Lancaster, or that the swords which guarded them were not the straight swords of England or of France. Doubtless a deeper and more solemn memory ought to return immediately to the mind, where that gate looks down on the great highway, as if one could see hung over it the sky forever, the clouds concealing the sunburst that broods upon the road to Damascus. But I am here only confessing the facts or the fancies of my first impression.' 
and again the fancy that came to me first was not of any such alien or awful things. I did not think of Damask or Damascene or the great Arabian city or even the conversion of St. Paul. I thought of my own little house in Buckinghamshire and how the edge of the country town where it stands is called Aylesbury End merely because it is the corner nearest to Aylesbury. That is what I mean by saying that these ancient customs are more rational and even utilitarian than the fashions of modernity. When a street in a new suburb is called Pretoria Avenue, the clerk living there does not set out from his villa with the cheerful hope of finding the road leading him to Pretoria. But the man leaving Aylesbury End does know it would lead him to Aylesbury, and the man going out at the Damascus Gate did know it would lead him to Damascus. And the same is true of the next and last of the old entrances, the Jaffa Gate in the east, that when I saw that, I saw something else as well. I have heard that there is a low doorway at the entrance to a famous shrine, which is called the Gate of Humility. But indeed, in this sense, all gates are gates of humility, and especially gates of this kind. Anyone who has ever looked at a landscape under an archway will know what I mean when I say that it sharpens a pleasure with a strange sentiment of privilege. It adds to the grace of distance something that makes it not only a grace, but a gift. Such are the visions of remote places that appear in the low gateways of a Gothic town, as if each gateway led into a separate world, and almost as if each dome of sky were a different chamber. But he who walks round the walls of this city in this spirit will come suddenly upon an exception, which will surprise him like an earthquake. It looks indeed rather like something done by an earthquake, an earthquake with half-witted sense of humor. Immediately at the side of one of these humble and human gateways, there is a great gap in the wall with a wide road running through it. There is something of unreason in the sight which affects the eye as well as the reason. It recalls some crazy tale about the great works of the wise men of Gotham. It suggests the old joke about the man who made a small hole for the kitten as well as a large hole for the cat. Everybody has read about it by this time, but the immediate impression of it is not merely an effect of reading or even of reasoning. It looks lopsided, like something done by a one-eyed giant. But it was done by the last prince of the great Prussian imperial system, in what was probably the proudest moment in all his life of pride. What is true has a way of sounding trite, and what is trite has a way of sounding false. We shall now probably weary the world with calling the German barbaric, just as we very recently wearied the world with calling them cultured and progressive and scientific. But the thing is true, though we say it a thousand times, and anyone who wishes to understand the sense in which it is true has only to contemplate that fantasy and fallacy in the stone, a gate with an open road beside it. The quality I mean, however, is not merely in that particular contrast as if a front door standing by itself in an open field. It is also in the origin, the occasion, and the whole story of the thing.
There is above all this supreme stamp of the barbarian, the sacrifice of the permanent to the temporary. When the walls of the holy city were overthrown for the glory of the German emperor, it was hardly even for that everlasting glory which has been the vision and the temptation of great men. It was for the glory of a single day. It was something rather in the nature of a holiday than anything that could be even in the most vainglorious sense a heritage. It did not, in the ordinary sense, make a monument or even a trophy. It destroyed a monument to make a procession. We might almost say that it destroyed a trophy to make a triumph. There is the true barbaric touch in this oblivion of what Jerusalem would look like a century after, or a year after, or even the day after. It is this which distinguishes the savage tribe on the march after a victory from the civilized army establishing a government, even if it be a tyranny. Hence the very effect of it, the effect of the whole Prussian adventure in history, remains something negative and even nihilistic. The Christians made the church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Moslems made the Mosque of Omar. But this is what the most scientific culture made at the end of the great century of science. It made an enormous whole. The only positive contribution of the nineteenth century to the spot is an unnaturally ugly clock at the top of an ornamental tower, or a tower that was meant to be ornamental. It was erected, I believe, to commemorate the reign of Abdul Hamid, and it seems perfectly adapted to its purpose, like one of Sir William Watson's sonnets on the same subject. But this object only adds a touch of triviality to the much more tremendous negative effect of the gap by the gate. That remains a parable, as well as a puzzle. Under all the changing skies of day and night, with the shadows that gather tinder, the narrow gate of humility, and beside it, blank as daybreak and abrupt as an abyss, the broad road that has led already to destruction. The gap remains like a gash, a sort of wound in the wall, but it only strengthens by contrast the general sense of their continuity. Save this one angle where the nineteenth century has entered, the vague impression of the thirteenth or fourteenth century rather deepens than dies away. It is supported more than many would have supposed, even by the figures that appear in the gateways or pass in the procession under the walls. The brown Franciscans and the white Dominicans would alone give some color to a memory of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. And there are other examples and effects which are less easily imagined in the West. Thus, as I look down the street, I see coming out from under an archway, a woman, wearing a high white headdress, very like those we have all seen in a hundred pictures of tournaments or hunting parties, or the Canterbury pilgrimage, or the court of Louis XI. She is as white as a woman of the north, and is not, I think, entirely fanciful to trace a certain freedom and dignity in her movement, which is quite different, at least, from the shuffling walk of the shrouded Moslem women. She is a woman of Bethlehem, where a tradition, it is said, still claims as a heroic heritage the blood of the Latin Knights of the Cross. This is, of course, but one aspect of the city, but it is one which may be early noted 
yet one which is generally neglected. As I have said, I had expected many things of Jerusalem, but I had not expected this. I had expected to be disappointed with it as a place utterly profaned and fallen below its mission. I had expected to be awed by it. Indeed, I had expected to be frightened of it as a place dedicated and even doomed by its mission. But I had never fancied that it would be possible to be fond of it, as one might be fond of a little walled town among the orchards of Normandy or the hop fields of Kent. And then there happened a coincidence that was also something like a catastrophe. I was idly watching as it moved down the narrow street to one of the dark doorways. The headdress, like a tower of white drapery, belonged to the Christian woman from the place where Christ was born. After she had disappeared into the darkness of the porch, I continued to look vaguely at the porch, and thought how easily it might have been a small Gothic gate in some old corner of Rouen or even Canterbury. In twenty such places in the town one may see the details that appear to the same associations. So different and so distant. One may see that angular dog-tooth ornament that makes the round Norman gateway look like the gaping mouths of sharks. One may see the pointed niches in the walls shaped like windows and serving somewhat the purpose for brackets on which were to stand sacred images possibly removed by the Moslems. One may come upon a small court planted with ornamental trees with some monument in the center which makes it the precise impression of something in a small French town. There are no Gothic spires, but there are numberless Gothic doors and windows, and he who first strikes the place at this angle, as it were, may well feel the northern element as native and the eastern element as intrusive. While I was thinking all these things, something happened which in that place was almost a portent. It was very cold and there were curious colors in the sky. There had been chilly rains from time to time, and the whole air seemed to have taken on something sharper than a chill. It was as if a door had been opened in the northern corner of the heavens, letting in something that changed all the face of the earth. Great gray clouds with halos of lurid pearl and pale green were coming up from the plains or the sea and spreading over the towers of the city. In the middle of the moving mass of grey vapours was a splash of paler vapour, a wan white cloud, whose white seemed somehow more ominous than gloom. It went over the high citadel like a white wild goose flying, and a few white feathers fell. It was the snow, and it snowed day and night, until that eastern city was sealed up like a village in Norway or northern Scotland. It rose in the streets till men might almost have been drowned in it like the sea of solid foam. And the people of the place told me there had been no such thing seen in it in all recent records, or perhaps in the records of all its four thousand years. All this came later, but for me at the moment, looking at the scene in so dreamy a fashion, it seemed merely like a dramatic conclusion to my dream. It was but an accident confirming what was but an aspect, but it confirmed it with a strange and almost supernatural completeness. 
The white light out of the window in the north lay on all the roofs and turrets of the mountain town, for there is an aspect in which snow looks less like frozen water than like solidified light. As the snow accumulated, there accumulated also everywhere those fantastic effects of frost which seem to fit in with the fantastic qualities of medieval architecture, and which make an icicle seem like the mere extension of a gargoyle. It was the atmosphere that has led so many romancers to make medieval Paris a mere black and white study of night and snow. Something had redrawn in silver all things, from the rude ornament on the old gateways to the wrinkles on the ancient hills of Moab. Fields of white still spotted with green swept down into the valleys between us and the hills, and high above them the holy city lifted her head into the thunder-clouded heavens, wearing a white headdress like the daughter of the Crusaders. End of chapter 3